listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. Well, before we dive in this morning, let's open with a word of prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather here as your people. God, we thank you that wherever your word is is opened, wherever it is taught, wherever it is proclaimed, that, that you are there with us, not in some ethereal sense, but in a very real, tangible sense. God, you give us your Holy Spirit as well, and we pray that you would be at work to open our eyes and ears to see and to hear you, not as we would have you, but as you are. So speak to each one who is here this morning, God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to tell you about a friend of mine by the name of John. I lived on the East Coast for close to five years. And I got to tell you, there are a lot of strange people on the East Coast. Not that there's not strange people around here. I've met some of you all. You're all kind of, you know. But it's different on the East Coast. You can, it's really funny. There's just so many people, and I think there's just so many worlds colliding that, you know, someone can be walking down New York City with wearing a pair of parachute pants and like a a Roman soldier's hat and, and, and a sword, and nobody would really bat an eye. They'd just be like, all right. Well, there goes another weirdo. Um, John was a neighbor of ours. So I, I worked for, for about five years at this, this church, Bunker Hill Lutheran Church, and it was in uh, Princeton, New Jersey. And, and it, was, it almost felt like a little country church. It was sort of strange. It was in suburbia, but its location, it felt very much like, uh, honestly, like this in a way, because you were kind of sheltered from some of the other areas. But next to the church was uh, an empty grass lot, and then next to that lot was this guy by the name of John. He lived, he lived there, and so the, the church lot and John's house was separated by this big lot. I think he may have actually owned the lot, too. But I was outside, and you know, I, I oftentimes, at a small church, you're kind of the only one that works there, so I come outside, and I'd, I'd go for, for walks, and I'd, I'd take a break. And it was a really uh, multi-ethnic, diverse secular area that, that we, we lived in. There, were, there was a huge Hindu population. So uh, on my walks, for example, I would run into this guy who was uh, kind of a teacher of the equivalent of confirmation in uh, Hinduism. And we would get into some interesting conversations about uh, faith and you know, what, what his beliefs were and everything. So you'd rub shoulders with all sorts of people. And I think that was a good, challenging way for my own faith to grow. But I happened to be outside on this one particular day, and I was kind of just walking along the edge of the, the parking lot, walking along the property there, and, and this, this guy happened to be out. And I, I knew I'd, I'd seen him around before. I'd seen him out in his, his yard. He had, he's the kind of guy that you don't have to guess what his political affiliations are because the, the, his yard and his bumper stickers will tell you, Right. So very uh, opinionated uh, about that. And so I kind of made the assumption, well, I must know everybody about this guy based on, on that, right? Well, I was wrong. 
John was out there, and he, he was kind of looking around in the grass. And I, I walked up to him. I said, hey, I, I kind of introduced myself, and I said, hey, what are you, you, know, what are you doing? Because it was clear that he was looking for something. And he was like, oh, uh, I shot a blow dart over here, and uh, I'm just kind of wandering around looking for it. So I was like, okay, mental note, avoid this part of the, uh, the property in the foreseeable future so I don't get hit by a blow dart. It was like 100 yards away. So he's shooting blow darts off his deck, I guess. This was a hobby or something. But we got to talking. John is 70 years old. He's a lapsed Catholic. He's a Reiki master. I don't know exactly what that is. Some sort of Eastern alternative medicine, something like that. He teaches parapsychology courses. He's into Wicca, and he is a shaman with roots in Peru. John needs Jesus. We all need Jesus. John needs Jesus, too. You see, the mission field has moved. It's moved in next door, literally next door. It used to be the case hundreds of years ago, maybe, maybe even less than that, that you could sort of, definitely less than that, you could sort of assume that the United States is a quote-unquote Christian nation. That's a problematic term for a number of reasons, but it's true that for the majority of its existence, the United States had roots in the teachings of Christianity. That is no longer the case Anymore. No longer do you have to go to Africa, do you have to go to Europe, do you have to go overseas at all to encounter people like John, right? The mission field has moved next door to us. It's already here. Whether we like it or not, what that means is that we are living as missionaries in a foreign mission field. You and I, friends, and this is the, the main point of, of this whole series, kind of the catchphrase, so very simple, I am God's missionary. Can you say that with me? I am God's missionary. One more time, I am God's missionary. So last week, we, we kicked off this sermon series, and we talked about our mission here at Elam Church, right? Because each particular church needs its own way of kind of articulating that in its own terms, right? We have, we have scripture, we have the Great Commission, but it's good for us to think about, man, within our context, uh, what does that look like? So who are we? Man, we rest in the gospel first and foremost, right? We are people who have found rest for our souls. The gospel is good news. That's what that word means. It is good news that we, we are saved apart from anything that we do. And that is something to be rested in and a truth to be basked in. And man, people today, they are restless. So first off, we are, we are a church that rests in the gospel. Secondly, we grow in Christ, right? Faith is not just a static thing that kind of sits there. Faith has wheels, it's on the move. It doesn't just sit there. It, it, it grows. And as we gather together uh, today, for example, for a, a sermon, or we gather together for Sunday school classes, or, or Bible study, or getting together with friends at a, at, a, at a home or in a local coffee shop, we grow as iron sharpens iron. So that's number two. We rest in the gospel. We grow in Christ. And then what else do we do? We love our communities, right? We love our community. And here, our community, that is the Osakis 
area, greater Todd County area and in beyond. And we are called to bring God's love to love our neighbors, to love those around us. And that means that we are people who love our community. So we rest in the gospel, we grow in Christ, we love our community. That was kind of laying the foundation or starting to. And today, I want to put one more brick in that foundation by talking about our missionary God. Because for us to understand our role, our calling as missionaries, we first have to understand that the God that we serve is a missionary God. When we read through the pages of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, we see God actively working His mission from beginning to end. And that's what I want to do today. I want us to just do a brief flyover of the Old Testament and of the New Testament just to, to get a, a, even just a taste of how we see God working and the mission we see Him wanting to accomplish. So if you have your Bibles, you are going to want to have those out today because I have the passages bookmarked, but I thought, you know, maybe I'll ask someone here to look one of them up. Maybe we'll do it more of a Bible study type way. We'll see. I don't know. Let's see how the Spirit moves. Uh, but here's a quote to kind of kick us off. George F. Weistam says this. He says, The Bible in its totality ascribes only one intention to God, to save mankind. The Bible in its totality ascribes only one intention to God, to save mankind. Let's go to Genesis 3.15. And I'm going to turn there, but if you beat me there, raise your hand. I hear somebody wants to read? No. Okay. That's all right. Genesis 3.15. Uh, this is the beginning, right? Genesis is the first book of the Bible. So this is really, really early on. And what happens in, in the creation account in the, in the book of Genesis? While God creates Adam and Eve, He creates the world, and it's good, and it's perfect, and there is nothing wrong with it. And human beings have this perfect relationship with God and with one another, not based on, on fear, but based on love and on the freedom that results from that. But what happens? And we get to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve eat the fruits, they break the world, and there are consequences for that. And here in Genesis 3.15, God is, is listing out what some of those consequences are. But then he gets to, to this verse. And listen, listen to what he says here. It says, and I will put enmity between you. He's talking to the, the serpent that deceived Eve. Between you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel." What do you hear there? This is called, it's, this particular verse has a name. It's called the Proto-Evangelion, which means the pre-gospel. The pre-gospel. Because what this is, is it's foreshadowing, and, it, and it's already in Genesis 3, right? Third chapter of the Bible. It's already foreshadowing and telling us that God is making plans. He is on a mission to save the world. He is going to provide a promised seed of Eve, who we find out later on is, is Jesus Christ, right? Who is going to crush 
the head of the serpent. He's going to defeat Satan. Satan will strike his heel, it says. Now, I don't know about you, but I've, I've had heel injuries before, and it's kind of annoying, but you can at least, you can move, you can walk, you can do some things, but uh, if somebody crushes my head, game over, right? So you see the, the difference here. Yes, Satan would strike the heel of Jesus in that he, in this world right now, he is the prince of this world. And he does have a foothold and he is active and he is working to, to tempt us and to, to draw us away from, from God and, and, and to doubt his promises, right? But that will not be forever. That is simply a striking of the heel versus what Jesus will do will come and shatter and crush the head of the serpent. So God already, when Adam and Eve mess things up royally in the Garden of Eden, which they do, which we continue to do, God is already making provision for that. He's already pointing ahead toward a Savior. And this is the beginning of His mission to redeem and restore His lost and broken creation. That's Genesis 3.15. Why don't you turn with me now to Genesis 12. And this, by the way, is, is a brief flyover. It's a sampling. It's not meant to be exhaustive in any way. Which you can thank me for, because we would be here for uh, days, probably, straight. Uh, Genesis 12, verse 3. This is no, what's known as the Abrahamic covenant. And we read certain parts of it, and we, we, we're, we're more familiar with, with certain parts of it. Like verse 2, God is speaking to Abraham. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Right? Israel is God's chosen people. He's going to make them to be a great blessing, and to make their name great, Israel is unique. But now listen to verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What peoples will be blessed through Israel? All peoples will be blessed through you. I don't know about you, but when I read the Old Testament and I think about Israel, I think of it as being kind of an insular community sometimes, right? Like these are God's chosen people. Um, God doesn't seem to be particularly concerned with all of the surrounding nations and stuff, right? He, he's just there for, for Israel. But what this verse teaches us is that right from the beginning, even the purpose of Israel was to draw other nations to himself, was for God to draw other people into the community of believers. The Old Testament and the New Testament both describe the mission of God, but they do so in, in different ways. In the Old Testament, I'm going to get all engineering, physics -y on you for a second. Uh, there's two kinds of forces, a centripetal force and a centrifugal force. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to screw these up even as I'm explaining it to you. So, don't hold it against me. I always mix them up. A centripetal force draws people in. A centripetal force is a kind of force that, that draws people into. If you think of a circle drawing, pulling people into the, the middle of it, right? And this is the way the Old Testament operates. Is God is drawing people in by making them a part of the Israelite community, right? When we get to the New Testament, it's a centrifugal I need a, a, a diagram for this. I'm sorry. 
a centrifugal force. So you think of a wheel spinning around and around really fast, and, and if you were to, to put like a put something small on that wheel, and it would just shoot it out, right? So in the New Testament, God is sending His church out, whereas in the Old Testament, it's more about gathering them in. So we see God operating in these different ways, but all the while, He is still concerned very deeply for not just His people Israel, but for the people that don't know Him, for the people that don't yet know God, that aren't a part of His church. Let's keep going with this. Isaiah 49, verse 6. You turn there with me now if you, if you have your Bibles. Isaiah 49, verse 6. This is a key passage, and I would say this encapsulates the Old Testament and God's mission and the way it operates in the Old Testament. Isaiah 49, 6. He says, this is the Lord, he says, it is too small a thing for you, speaking to Israel, Jacob, for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's too small a thing for you to just be concerned about yourselves. You are here for the good of your neighbors. You are here for those who don't yet know me, for the Gentiles. And he will make them a light to the Gentiles. And we here today in the same vein, right, we, God says his church, those who believe in, in Jesus Christ, they are now sons of Abraham through faith and not by blood. And so for us, this means that we are called to be a light to our non-believing neighbors as well. In that same sense. So that's a little bit of a glimpse of a glimmer, at least, I hope, in, in the Old Testament. There's all sorts of passages. If you want to look it up later, look up the story of, of Naaman and the Syrian. That's a, a phenomenal story telling about God's mission work and how he's, he uses people who are not of Israel to further his kingdom and to further his mission. But let's jump ahead to the New Testament now. This is Luke 4, verses 16 through 27. Luke 4, 16 through 27. And this is Jesus' inaugural sermon. And man, I got to tell you, your inaugural sermon Oh, it's a terrifying thing to give. Oh, my goodness. I was talking to a seminary professor of mine. He said when he gave his first, uh, his first inaugural sermon, he had the whole thing written on a three-by-five card, you know, and it was supposed to last 20 minutes. He read through the whole thing. He looked at the clock. It had been like four minutes. So he started over and just did it again. <laughs> they got two for the price of one that day. Uh, I promise not to do that to you this morning. But here is Jesus' inaugural sermon in his hometown. Luke 4, beginning at verse 16. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue. As was his custom, he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Here it is. Listen to this. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Whew. And how do they respond to that? Well, worse than they responded to my first sermon, uh, they got furious, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of a hill, and were ready to throw him off. Why are they so upset here? Well, it's because Jesus is saying, I'm not just here for you. I'm not just here to be the God of, of Israel. I'm here to do what I said I was here to do back in the Old Testament again and again. I'm here not just for the Israelites. I am here for those in Zarephath, which is a region outside of Israel, in the region of Sidon. And I am here for those of Syria, people of all tribes, all nations, and in all tongues, it was never the case that God shared His riches with the Israelites just for them to, to kind of hoard them or to, to hold on to them, right? These are riches that are meant to be shared. So right off the bat, Jesus sets the tone with His, his very first sermon in speaking these words. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this is the early church being formed throughout the book of Acts, right? And, and at this point, this is just before Jesus ascends into heaven. So these are like, this is the last verse Jesus says to his disciples before he ascends into heaven. So pretty important, right? You listen to someone's last words before they're going to, to be gone. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What is Jesus doing here? What's he up to? He's sending his people out. He's sending his church out. He is saying, you as my disciples are sent not just gathered together. You are a church that is sent. There is no such a thing as an unsent disciple of Jesus. There is no such a thing as a disciple of Jesus who is not a missionary. In fact, when you read through the book of Acts, right, you, you keep going through this thing and you realize that missionary activity was going on really hardcore from the very beginning. 
And the Apostle Paul had many missionary journeys that he took. And the gospel is, is spreading in, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Jerusalem being the one little town that, that they're a part of. And then Judea, obviously, the, the bigger region, kind of this, this province. And Samaria, the neighboring nation. And then from there out to, to all corners of the world, right? Now, was everyone called to Samaria? No. Some were called to just Jerusalem, right? Some were certainly called to the ends of the earth. Some were called to neighboring provinces. Not everyone is called to every single one of those areas, but we are all called as disciples, as Jesus' disciples, to be His missionaries. And then finally, we've read the, the first book of the Bible, seeing how, how things start out, and God sends His promise that he will give a promised Messiah to crush the head of Satan. Now we get to Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. Revelation 7, verses 9 through 10. This is, the, this is a, John is having this vision of the end times and he says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every tribe, nation, people, and language, standing there before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Beautiful picture, isn't this? People from every tribe, every nation, every people, every language, just standing before the throne of God and, and singing. I mean, what, what an amazing picture about how God, His mission, right, that he, he started in the book of Genesis, how He is bringing that to completion. It, it's fully accomplished. And we see that here as he gathers us around his throne room. Now, here's something we need to understand about the idea of missions, okay? I think sometimes we hear the word missions or we hear the word missionary and we think of it as its own separate program, right? Like our church has the... Uh, I don't know, we've got the ladies' aid, we've got the, the youth group, we've got um, Bible study and prayer, and then we have our missions. Um, and we sort of number it among all of the other things, right? As if it's its own kind of ministry. But the way that the Bible talks about it, the way that we have seen throughout all of Scripture, is that mission is not just something that God does, it's a part of who He is. That's really important. A mission is not just about what God does, it's who He is. What do I mean by that? I mean that God, in His very nature, is a God who sends. We have God, we have God the Trinity, right? This strange concept that we don't always talk about all that much because and sometimes maybe that's for the better because it's hard to wrap our minds around it, right? Which is a good thing because if we couldn't, then we wouldn't really expect Him to be, to be God. If, if, we, if we were able to wrap our minds around Him, we would 
kind of be shocked at that. Trinity, God is three in one, three distinct persons, one divine essence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what is, what is this activity within the Trinity, this relationship between the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, what does that look like? Well, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. God does what? He sends His Son into the world for us to be our sacrifice, to die on a cross for our sins, for, this, for our salvation. God the Father sends God the Son. And then we have God the Father and God the Son, and what do they do? They send the Holy Spirit. As our creeds confess, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. And the Holy Spirit is what? Poured out, given, sent to believers on Pentecost, right? You've got this this crazy image at the book of Acts where these tongues of fire descend and the people just can't help but they start preaching and everybody's hearing them in their own languages. So we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, Father, sends the Son. Son and Father send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is sent upon us and we in turn are sent out, propelled out into the world. Not by our own power, not by our own might, not by our own desire. Missions and the mission we are sent on to partner with God and His redeeming work here on earth is not just something that He does, not just something that we as a church are called to do. It is called to be, we are called to have that as a part of who we are, of our very DNA. Samuel Escobar says this. He says, mission begins in the very heart of God. I thought that was really good. Mission begins in the very heart of God. It's the heart of God where all of this originates, that, that catalyzes it, that, that sends and, and pushes us out beyond the four walls of the church to be his, his missionaries. Now, you might be wondering, okay, this is good. This is, this is helpful to know, but man... When I walk out those doors and, and, and you look at the world that we live in today, it is incredibly disorienting, right? It is incredibly confusing. We live in a really challenging time with a really difficult mission field. It's rocky soil, right? Really rocky soil that we are called to till. Well, I want to offer you three things that I think are very helpful comforts for us to hear. And they follow from everything that we've studied from Scripture. So, number one, the results of God's mission are a guaranteed success. There's no question about whether God's mission is going to be finished, is going to be complete. We just read from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We know how it ends. We know who wins. We know God is going to draw all those who believe to Himself. So it's not like we're sent into a battle with some sort of battle plans and we're, we're kind of crossing our fingers and hoping, oh, golly gee, I, I hope that this works out. I hope that God really, you know, comes through for us. No, there, there is no question. 
the results of the mission are guaranteed. You're charging, we are charging that battlefield in a sense, knowing who wins, right? So that's comfort number one. And comfort number two, this is going to sound strange, but it's true. God doesn't need us, but He chooses to use us. Kind of humbling to hear, right? God doesn't need us at all. Spoiler alert, God is complete in and of Himself. He lacks nothing. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to go out and do His work. He could snap His fingers and say, let's just do it that way. But He chooses to use us to partner with Him in His work here on earth. It's kind of like we get to help God in the same sense that a two-year-old gets to help dad fix the car, right? Hand me that wrench. Comes over with a blowtorch. Uh, keep your two-year-olds away from blowtorches. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like a, a little kid that wants to help their parent. In reality, the parent can probably get the job done a whole lot faster on their own. But God chooses to include us. And we have this wonderful, immense blessing to be able to participate in God's mission. So that's comfort number two. God doesn't need us, but chooses to use us. And comfort number three, man, I think this is, this is so big because we can look around us and we can think, all right, this world is increasingly secular. It's increasingly pluralistic. It's increasingly non-Christian, which I think in many respects is true. So what we have to do as a church is come up with some brand new 10-step plan to be able to, to meet and to respond to the complexities in the world around us. Well, I'm all for changing approaches, and each new age and new generation has to contextualize our approaches to ministry, absolutely. But at base, man, the problem people are facing is the exact same problem humans have always faced. That little three-letter word, sin. And that means that the solution is the same as it always has been. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus, through His life, death, and resurrection, saves us from our sin. He forgives us wholly and completely, not just partially, not just the little kinds of whoopsie-doos, everything, the worst day any of us have ever had in our life or will ever have, God casts into the heart of the sea and He promises to remember it no more and He will not hold that over your head. You are forgiven. See, the solution is the same as it's always been. It's the gospel. And the gospel is always relevant because people are always going to be, this side of heaven, sinners. Dear friends, we serve a missionary God. The Father sends the Son. The Father and Son send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been sent to us, poured out upon us, and we are sent out into the world 
as God's missionaries. And as you exit the doors of this church today, you will be entering the mission field. Your community, your job, the places you spend time outside the walls of the church building, that is your mission field, and that is where the lion's share of ministry is actually going to happen. See, we're not just a church when we're gathered. We're a church when we're sent. We're not just a church on Sunday mornings. Monday through Saturday, we are also the church, individually, by families dispersed out to our communities, but we are no less the church then than we are right now. See, that is our mission field. And God wants to use you to bring the hope of the gospel to people who desperately need it. Because here at Elam, we rest in the gospel, we grow in Christ, and we love our community. And guys, wherever we go, we have this sure promise that God goes before us. And we claim that and and hold on to that. And may that truth be pressed deep into our hearts this week. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's Pastor KJ. O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen.